Con. If you will remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Uh, For those of you I've not yet met, my name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here, and we're going to talk about anxiety today. Anybody else getting anxiety about that clapping, like not knowing how to do it? Uh, I just felt so insecure. I love it, but I'm like, when do I do it again, you know? Um, Our scripture reading for today comes out of Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word speaks to the real areas of our lived lives. It is not aloof, it is not distant. Even though it is ancient, it is incredibly relevant. And so I, I pray that today, as we hear your son's teaching on anxiety, God, I, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, convince us of your trustworthiness. God, I, I pray that in all the ways that maybe in the past different, different things have, have blocked us or kept us from really trusting in you and your provision and your ability and in your care, God, I, I pray that by your Spirit, you would remove those things this morning and you would allow our hearts that are so anxious to just be laid bare before you and to hear this word that Jesus says about anxiety. And so where we have our defenses up or where we already think we know where this is going, God, would you, just, would you tear those down? And would you, by your spirit, help us to, to trust in your loving and lavish care? God, would you unite your power with my weak words and give us peace this morning? or at least put us on the path to peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I hate to bring you back to this moment, uh, but there's still so much for us to learn from it. Think back with me to that first beginning of the pandemic when each of us were shut into our houses. There were, there were many things that we were feeling. We, were, uh, we felt some dread, we had some confusion, some anger, some hopelessness, and among, among many other things that we were feeling, we were all together experiencing a deep sense of disorientation. 
The, the whole world had changed, and we were not just witnessing world history, but we were participating in it. And in that participation, it brought with it a, a deep sense of disorientation. And I believe that, that this disorientation that we all had came not just from the confusion or even the fear of a novel virus, but also from just the abrupt disruption of our otherwise busy lives. We simply did not know, and quite frankly, still do not know, how to slow down. And we weren't even able to slow down progressively. We were, all of our lives were, were screeched to a halt. And that, that halting of, of daily activity left us disoriented, and if I can put it this way, mentally and emotionally concussed. Anyone else ever had a concussion? You know what that feels like? You feel out of it. And in those beginning days, mentally and emotionally, each one of us were out of it. There was a sense of shell shock at how quickly things had come to a stop. We weren't and we still are not accustomed to living a life that is slow. Our life is so busy, so just this flurry of activity, and, and we miss so much of, of what goes by because of it. And I, and I know this because it, it, here's, a, here's a question. If you had to guess... In those beginning days of the pandemic, what was the number one Google search for in those first few weeks of the pandemic? How do we get toilet paper? That's a close one. <laughs> Man, remember that. Maybe what are the symptoms of this new virus? What, or questions around death rates, maybe, maybe searching Google on how to survive financially and how to receive financial assistance. Those were all up there, including the one with toilet paper. But the strange one, among the toilet paper one, that rose to the top for those first few weeks was this, that in March 2020, one of the top trending Google searches was this, why are the birds so loud? <laughs> that was one of the number one searches in Google that month. Now, su surprise, surprise, birds did not get noticeably louder in 2020. You see, the, the whole world had screeched to that disorienting halt, and for the first time, many of us were able to notice what was going on around us. And in that space of having to stop and notice, we actually heard the birds truly singing in a way that we had, we had never noticed. We, we heard the birds because we ceased from our activity before the pandemic and now sadly after it as well. Our lives were and are lived in a flurry of activity where things just race by, race by us. And this unceasing activity, in my opinion, is due to more than just the capitalism in our bones, to, to gain more and to profit more. No, 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 the flurry of activity that fills our lives is the result of that widespread cultural contagion, anxiety. There, there are two responses to the anxiety that we feel, that all of us feel, and the first of which is activity. In response to the, to the dread that we feel, we just get busy. We, we get busy building up the resources that we think will protect us. We get busy trying to tie up the loose ends and trying to do everything right, trying to get the math right so that we can, in our, in our heads, be assured that we will survive or we just busy ourselves as a means of distraction, right? If I can just focus on this, I won't be, aware, I won't be so aware of how I feel so 
afraid, how I feel like life is caving in on me. We respond to our anxiety with activity. But we also, in our second response, respond to anxiety with paralysis. In response to whatever threat we see, we we slip into listlessness and choose just to exist rather than to live. And in fact, if you want to know why I think so many people are addicted to social media or even to things like gaming, it's because there is this slipping into listlessness. It's a, it's a response to a fearful life in an intimidating world, and so we might as well just do nothing. We respond to our anxiety with paralysis. All of us see this. All of us feel this. In our culture, we know anxiety is a thing. It doesn't take much effort for me to convince you that we live in an anxious world. We're all either busy or we're all numbing ourselves with inactivity. It can be argued that anxiety is the public health crisis of our time, right? Which, friends, what I just said, that last sentence is one of the strangest sentences that can come out of your mouth. Why is that? Anxiety is the public health crisis of our time. Why is that so confusing? Well, because our time is filled with more safety than at any other time in human history. To say that that anxiety is the public health crisis of our time is strange because in terms of life expectancy or financial possibility and prosperity or even the, the hope of being relationally connected, all of those, all of those things are more, ex- more at your disposal than ever in history. You are more safe right now, no matter what's going on in your life. You are more safe right now than your ancestors could have ever dreamed. And yet, you are also more anxious, more medicated, more therapeutic, more whatever than your ancestors. And now I'm not not knocking medicine or, or therapy and from ages 13 to 16, I was on medicine and I can confidently say that it saved my life, but it is worth calling out that though we are more objectively safe than ever, we are also more subjectively afraid than ever. Protected like never before, we are also more panicked and more skittish than ever before. What I'm trying to get across is this. Whatever we have tried does not seem to be working for very long. <laughs> can, I, can, I, can, can you agree with that? Whatever we are trying to do to solve our anxiety, it doesn't seem to be working for that long. It, it seems as though our safe world that is filled with anxiety, proves to us that there is no level of self-protection that will rescue us from our anxiety. You need to hear me say that again. There is, our world proves that there is no level of self-protection that will ultimately calm your anxiety. We have more of it than ever but we are more anxious than ever. So it seems as though the solution to our anxiety cannot come from ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves into peace or provide for ourselves enough in order to ultimately stave off anxiety. And within this problem of us not being able to solve our own anxiety, Jesus' word on anxiety steps in. 
And I hope that from the sense of your own inability to soothe your anxiety, you'll hear the, what I think is the strange yet freeing word that he gives us today. And so let's, let's jump in. Jesus starts off his word on anxiety by obviously calling us away from it. Do not be anxious. But Jesus, he, he just finished warning us in the passage before of the impossibility of serving both God and money. We will have to serve one or the other. And his command is obviously, surprise, surprise, that we serve God. But immediately after his command to serve God instead of money, Jesus presupposes what will come up in our minds. If we're supposed to serve God and therefore let go of the hold that we have on money, how will we survive? Jesus knows the anxiety that, that naturally rises when we let go of protecting ourselves. So Jesus presupposes our anxiety and speaks direct, directly to it, calling us away from it. Do not be anxious, Jesus says. Let's pause for a moment and consider what Jesus is actually calling us away from. The anxiety that Jesus speaks to here is more than just simply feeling worried. We, we all feel worried about different things, right? We're worried about going to the dentist. You should see my gums. I'm very worried. We're worried about going to, to facing a, a difficult interview, but within those worries, we often find in ourselves the capacity to to ratchet up our courage and find some resolve to face what we're afraid of. That type of worry in which we can ratchet up our courage and just face it anyways is not what Jesus is speaking of here. No, the anxiety that Jesus speaks to here is a type of sickness of the soul. As, as John Webster says, anxiety is that sickness of the soul in which what might happen to us fills us with dread. In anxiety, we, we see the possibilities that stretch out ahead of us. We imagine our life that is ahead. And instead of being filled with hope, we are filled with terror. Anxiety, as, as Jesus speaks of it here, is the dark side of our uniquely human capacity to hope. Let me say that again. Anxiety is the dark side of our uniquely human capacity to hope. Humans alone have the capacity to hope. We are able to look into the future and fill out what we don't see with, with great expectation. Hope is when we project ourselves into the future and imagine what may be. We stretch out toward the future with longing. But in anxiety, as the dark side of that capacity, instead of stretching out toward the future with longing, we, we busy ourselves with our, we busy our imaginations with images of dread, <laughs> the threats that could lay out ahead of us. We fill in the gaps between now and then with all kinds of disturbing possibilities, and those things eat us up. Anxiety, as Jesus speaks of it here, is the dark shadow of our uniquely human capacity to hope. Now, because anxiety is that dark shadow of hope, when we are anxious, this is an obvious statement, we are emptied of our capacity to hope. <laughs> we are emptied of it. You see, hope and anxiety come from the same place in the human heart. 
Both of them come from that place in the human heart that is future-oriented, and when you have one that dominates, it is very difficult to have the other. And so oftentimes, anxiety zaps us of of finding any hope, of of looking toward the future with longing. In anxiety, we, we are robbed of the capacity to look forward with longing, or even just a sense of optimism. Anxiety robs us of hope and the hope of what could be. I remember this whenever we had our first, first child. Uh, I, have a four, I have a four-year-old and uh, a one-year-old, and uh, when we had my daughter Margot, who's the oldest, can you guess how, how much sleep I got that first night? <laughs> Zero, close, 15 minutes. <laughs> but it was not because of her. It was, she slept literally like a baby that night. <laughs> But I didn't sleep at all. In fact, I have a picture that I wish I would have brought. It's me just on the couch at like 4 a.m., just like a selfie, you know, had to document how exhausted I was. The reason I couldn't sleep is just because I could not imagine going to sleep while this little fragile human being seems like they would require my attention. I couldn't let go and just go to sleep. And, it, and in fact, that was the story for so much of those first few years of being a dad. Those first couple years, because of my own anxiety, my unwillingness to let go of what could be, prevented me from looking forward to what could be and from enjoying what actually is. Anxiety robbed me of those early years. I was unable to look forward to a life of love and joy with my daughter precisely because My perception of the future wouldn't allow that future good to exist. Anxiety robs us of what we want most. It robs us of our capacity to hope. And so because of that, because it is so detrimental, Jesus' command is that we not be anxious. And he fills out this command with specific examples. Look at at verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. As Jesus calls us away from anxiety, he calls us away from being anxious about the most basic and fundamental aspects of our, of our survival. Don't be anxious about what you're gonna eat. Don't be anxious about, about clothing or about shelter. And, and can I tell you something, friends? On its face, this seems absurd. On his face, this is one of the craziest, most absurd things that Jesus ever said. If we were to set aside for a moment our our instinct to just hear this and, and take it up with some true objectivity instead, what Jesus says here seems absurd. What kind of society could function like this? How could the world actually work? Our entire history of survival as a species has been driven by the need to find food, to find shelter, to have clothing so that we're not exposed to the elements. If we didn't have that instinctual drive, or rather, if, if we were willing to set it aside like Jesus says here, how in the world could we actually survive? What society could not only last, but actually progress if they really took to heart what Jesus is saying here. 
Can I ask an obvious question that maybe you don't wanna, you wanna prevent yourself from asking here? Is Jesus out of touch with reality? That's a, le- that's a legitimate question when you think about this text objectively. Is Jesus out of touch with reality? Is Jesus so idealistic that he can't actually see how the real world works? Is this actually absurd? Well, all of what Jesus says here would actually be absurd if it wasn't for where he goes in the rest of this passage. Look look at verses 26 through 33 with me. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what are we gonna eat? What are we gonna drink? What are we gonna wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What we see here in the remaining section of this passage is that Jesus is not out of touch with reality. He is not interested in being idealistic. Rather, he is interested in reframing our reality. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus invites us to walk away from anxiety by reframing what we perceive as really real. (laughs) He, He doesn't want you to flippantly lay aside your anxiety simply because he said so. No, rather he wants to change the fundamental point from which you view the world. Jesus is inviting you into a new reality for you to see that's already there. So how how does he do this? How does Jesus shift our reality so that we can walk away from anxiety? First, Jesus wants to shift our reality by getting us to believe the father of lavish love. The vision of reality that feeds our anxiety is this. We are alone, and we bear the burden of ensuring that we survive. That's a a burden that our shoulders have to carry, and it feeds our anxiety. And yet the, the vision of reality that Jesus wants to reorient us around has at its center a father of lavish love. That's at the center. What we see about this father is that he's one who takes notice of his creation. The birds of the air have food because God takes notice of them. The reality is that God the Father is not aloof, is not uninterested, is not unaware about the real needs of real life. Rather, What is real is that there is a father who takes special notice of what his creation needs. And Jesus demonstrates 
the depths of this father's care by highlighting his care for the creatures that, if I can put it this way, seem most disposable. Sorry, if it, birds are beautiful. And if you're into bird watching, bless you. That's, that's amazing. I, I, I love birds too. But when's the last time you noticed a seagull? Like really, when you're down at the pier, when's the last time that you noticed a seagull? As beautiful as many birds are, I have a bird tattooed on me. I love them. Again, they also seem kind of disposable. There's so many of them. There's so many, and just the sheer number of them means that you take less notice. Again, when's the last time that you noticed a seagull? But not only that, that there's so many, they are also incredibly annoying. They are the ones that ruin picnics. They are the ones that you have to fight off when you're trying to eat at the waterfront, right? They're just a bunch of scavengers. And yet, despite all of this, Jesus says, the father of lavish love takes notice of each one. And if the depths of his attentive care go all the way down to the bird, as Jesus says, are you not of more value than them? The reality that Jesus wants to orient us around is that there is a father who knows our needs because we are not hidden from him. That at the center of reality that Jesus is bringing us into is that there is one who provides for our needs because of his own decision. He loves human beings. He loves his creation. In all of our fragility, in all of our permanence, God the Father desires that we should flourish. That that Father is at the center of this reality Jesus is bringing us into that he wants his creation to flourish. And I really mean flourish. Not only does the Father give what we need, but he's also the Father of abundance. I use that term consistently now, intentionally. The lavish Father of love. And we see this abundance in the other example Jesus gives, the lilies of the field. Jesus specifically calls out the abundance of beauty that the Father affords the flowers of the fields. Just the abundance that, that's there. They are arrayed with beauty that even Solomon, who really can be argued, was the most rich person to ever live, even today, that man would have been a beggar in comparison, that these flowers are arrayed in beauty that nothing can compare to. It's, it's April in Seattle. You begin to see it, right? There's such a, almost an overkill of beauty. That's meant to communicate to you the lavish heart of the Father that wants you to flourish. They are arrayed in beauty because there is a lavish father of love that not only provides for our necessities, not only gives the birds what they need, but even beauty and abundance for the flowers. Here it is. Jesus calls us away from anxiety by shifting our reality from scarcity and self-dependence to value and love from the lavish father. Jesus calls us into that reality. But there's another shift 
that Jesus wants to make in our vision of reality. There at the end of this passage, Jesus specifically calls out the reality of kingdom. He says, and everyone probably knows this verse, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, this is, a, this is an often quoted verse, but what does it really mean? Well, the idea of seeking the kingdom, because remember, in, in its context, it is directly related to how Jesus has been speaking of, of what we do in our anxiety. Like I said earlier, when we are anxious, we often busy ourselves with a flurry of activity. And so, in other words, we orient ourselves to the world by seeking what we think will protect us and help us survive. But Jesus here is saying to take that orientation of activity and shift it to an orientation of God's kingdom. That's what Jesus is getting at here, which means for us to shift our orientation away from our own efforts and toward God's active reign in the world. Jesus wants to shift your reality to see that there is a kingdom that is at work, that you should be directing your orientation toward. This is a great shift that Jesus wants us to make in our vision of reality. He wants us to see that this world is no longer a place of chaos in which tragedy and hurt just randomly happen. Jesus wants to tell you that's not true. This world is not run by chaos, by meaninglessness, by chance. Instead, because Jesus has come into the world to establish and exercise God's kingdom, what now orients our vision of reality can be God's rule and reign. Not chance, not chaos, not random forces that our anxiety thinks we have to stave off. No, the world we now live in is a world in which God's rule and reign is expressed in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, by using the language of kingdom, is trying to get you to shift your reality around the sheer fact of himself, if I can put it that way. The sheer fact of who he is and all that that means. The sheer fact of Jesus Christ, which means that God has come to rule and reign on the earth again. Jesus coming to earth living a real life of full humanity with full divinity is the great testimony, friends, of God's intervention. The sheer fact of Jesus Christ and who he is means that this world, our reality, is one in which God has invaded our world with grace. The sheer fact of Jesus Christ means that God has caught this world from devolving further into chaos and dissolution. That world of inevitable and uncontrollable chaos is no longer a reality simply because Jesus is. Jesus is the intervention of God. 
Jesus is the expression of God's unchallenged rule. Jesus has no rival when it comes to his reign. No rival. Because of the kingdom of God, chaos and every danger that we think could be is now subject to the reigning king. Chaos is not a, it's not a danger that can now run free. Danger will not have the last word. Rather, everything that is and will be must now answer to the one who expresses and exercises God's rule and God's reign. Jesus wants to lead us away from anxiety by shifting our reality from one of chaos and inevitable tragedy to one of purpose and meaningful personal reign of Jesus. Because Jesus is king, we can walk away. Because Jesus is, we can walk away from anxiety. So Jesus wants to to change our reality. No longer are we alone, but we are cared for by a father of lavish love. No longer are we subject to the forces of unpredictable chaos, but we are now within the kingdom of Jesus' reign. But there's a question that, that remains for many of us in our anxiety. How do we move from our default view of reality and anxiety to the reality that Jesus invites us to see here? How do you make that shift? You're not gonna like my answer, but it's plastered all over this passage. We embrace this reality through the practice of faith. Jesus tells us that anxiety does not match up with the reality that he has put forward. But what does match up with that is faith. Now, now faith is not a hoping against evidence. It's not a crazy hope that just is. That type of faith is a sickness within itself as well. Jesus doesn't want you to embrace this reality that he's laying forward in the absence of evidence. Literally, throughout this whole passage, he's invited you to see the evidence that flies through the air and that covers the field. Jesus has given you evidence. Blind faith is not Christian faith. No, instead, faith in the Christian sense is that deeply healthy state of the soul in which we let God be God. If you wanna shift from your your perceived reality and anxiety over into the reality that Jesus is laying out here, what it takes is a faith, which is that deeply healthy state of the soul where we let God be God. Again, as, as John Webster says, faith is that free, unhesitating, joyful ascent to the one in the midst of whose kingdom we stand secure. That's what faith is, friend. And since faith is the proper response to what Jesus lays out here, since faith is the healthy state of our souls in which we let God be God, let me offer one closing exhortation and then an encouragement. Faith as we've described it here, takes so much more 
than acknowledging that you don't have control. It takes way more than that. How much more? What it, what it takes to have faith that trusts in God for God to be God is for you to no longer want control. You know, I've, I've shared so many times my own personal struggle with anxiety and with OCD. And can I tell you, the most frustrating, the most fruitless word that anyone can ever share is you know you don't have control, right? I'm like, yeah, I know that. <laughs> but what good is knowing I don't have control if I still want it? I've had to get to a place in which control is no longer a thing that I see I don't own, but it's no longer a thing that I'm searching for. I'm not trying to get my hands on control. Instead, I'm seeing this passage I'm seeing what Jesus lays out here and seeing that it's good for me to not have control. I think that's so much of what Jesus is doing in this passage, talking about a good father and his kingdom reign, is not just trying to convince you that you don't have control, but trying to make the case for you as to why you should not want it. That there is someone who actually does have control and who is completely trustworthy with it. If we're going to have a faith that is that deeply healthy state of the soul in which we let God be God, we first have to want God to be God and not ourselves. If we are going to walk in faith, we have to see that Jesus is here showing us that there is someone who handles control far better and deserves control far more. And when we get to that place, we get to that place where control doesn't have to be wrenched from our cold, dead fingers, but is offered up with an open hand. Friend, I'm telling you from personal experience, your anxiety, when you think about that, your anxiety is gonna autom automatically throw up red signals. That's not the way. Don't do it. I'm telling you as a personal testimony that the only way to peace is to let go of your desire for control. It's for you to get to a place where you've experienced the lavish father of love enough to say, it's better for you to have it. It's better, I want you to have control. And it's not like, you know, it's not me wanting the control, I actually gains the control. It doesn't matter whether I want God to have control or not, he already has it. <laughs> but it's better for me <laughs> when I want him to have it. That's the way of peace. And so I would encourage you to, as you go home and as you spend your Sunday, I would encourage you to, to write down in a journal, that's what's been helpful for me, why do you really want control? What happened to you that threw your whole mind, your whole mental health into chaos that you've been living in this script for years now that you should have control, that it would be better, I guess, for you to have control. What evidence do you see of that? And what counter evidence do you see in this scripture that, that, that the Father alone deserves that control? Now, a, a final encouragement. The good news to all of us who are deeply fearful is that 
the Bible speaks to nothing more than it does our fear. The most consistent phrase in the Bible of God toward his people is do not fear. That is the consistent refrain of God toward his people. One, because he knows how prone to fear we all are, but also because he wants to assure us. Because what often follows that do not fear is because I'm with you. If we can sense that, if we can sense the withness of God, that even as I'm curled up in the fetal position in my closet, which is not an illustration, even then, God is with me. God's presence is with me. Whatever I think, whatever I think is going to be wrong, whatever I think is going to happen, I don't have to fear it because God is going to be with me. You see, that's, I'm going way off script here, but that's part of the reason why anxiety is so detrimental to us because you, you wanna know what anxiety is to the Christian? It is you dress rehearsing the unfaithfulness of God. You know, dress rehearsal, you're putting the clothes on, you're going through the script, but it's not really happening. Anxiety is you dress rehearsing what you think it's going to be like when God doesn't come through. And that's why it's so, that's why it's so dominating and that's why it's so exhausting is because you're trying to, one, you're saying a false reality about God that he's not gonna come through, but also you're trying to tap into a strength that you don't yet need because you're not yet in that moment. Anxiety whips us because we don't think God is going to be there. So we start making our own little plans. We start doing what we think is going to need to happen. We start shoring up our loose ends in order to make sure that whenever God doesn't come through, I'm gonna still be okay. No, we can actually dress rehearse the faithfulness of God prepare our hearts to see that he is the God who comes through and in who is with us. And we can do that, friend. We can dress rehearse the faithfulness of God when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no other place for us to really see and to sense God's commitment to you That is, Paul says, if he did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not now with him graciously give us all things? Anxiety loses its staying power when you see the commitment of God in the cross of Christ. You can look at that and say, if he went there, what in the world makes me think he won't be there wherever I'm afraid of? So friends, in your anxiety, I would, I would encourage you to, to look at the cross. It's the clearest apprehension we have of God's commitment and of God's faithfulness. Let's pray. Father,
I know how thoughts are running through my friends' minds right now. Some of them right now are, are thinking, are not letting themselves feel everything that, that needs to be felt from what your son says here. We're so afraid and we're so afraid to not be afraid. God, would you overcome the resistance in our hearts? And even right now, as, as I trust that you've ministered to your people, where we are holding back, just fully entering into the vision of, of your love for us in Christ, and, and we just maybe we just don't want to break down. God, would you give us the grace to to just enter in right now. Wherever you've made our heart raw and have uncovered some things for us to feel, for us to process and for us to pray through, God, would you help us to not resist those things right now but enter into them fully. And Father, I, I thank you that you are the father of lavish love. You are the God who is with us and provides everything that we need. And we thank you that this world, because of the sheer fact of Jesus Christ, is not a place of chaos, is not a place of inevitable ruin, but is instead a place of your reign, where we encounter your rule. God, would you shift our reality to see that? And would you do that? Would you help us to enter into that reality by faith? Would you lovingly convince us of your trustworthiness in order that control, the desire for control, can be freely surrendered to you. God, we trust you, and we are, we are pleading with you to convince us of, of how much more trust you are worth. We know it, but we want, to, we want to enter into it more. So be gracious to us as we think and respond and pray and sing and minister to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are his.